1: In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of choice morsels from this week's coverage. I'm the language columnist of The Economist, Lane Green. On the menu this week, all work and no play makes Jack and Jill dull teens, a weed census in Canada, and why Indian tea is going cold. But first, one year old was our cover line this week as our leader looked back on the first year of President Trump. Almost one year into Donald
2: Trump's presidency, you have to pinch yourself to make sense of it all. In Fire and Fury, Michael Wolff's gossipy tale of the White House, which did not welcome Mr Trump's anniversary so much as punch it in the face, the leader of the free world is portrayed as a monstrously selfish toddler emperor seen by his own staff as unfit for office. Trump watching is compulsive, who hasn't waited guiltily for the next tweet, with horrified anticipation. Given how much rests on the man's shoulders and how ill-suited he is to the presidency, the focus on Mr. Trump's character is both reasonable and necessary. But, our leader argued, this focus does not tell the whole story. To see why it is incomplete, consider first that the American economy is in fine fettle, growing by an annualized 3.2% in the third quarter. But more worryingly, The danger of the Trump character obsession is that it distracts from deeper changes in America's system of government. The bureaucracy is so understaffed that it is relying on industry hacks to draft policy. They have shaped deregulation and written clauses into the tax bill that pass costs from shareholders to society. Because Senate Republicans confirmed so few judges in Mr. Obama's last two years, Mr. Trump is moving the judiciary dramatically
1: to the right. Our leader goes on to argue that the current flap over mental fitness is also misguided. Mr. Trump's mental state is impossible to diagnose from
2: afar, but he does not appear to be any madder than he was when the voters chose him over Hillary Clinton. Unless he can no longer recognize himself in the mirror which in Mr. Trump's case would surely be one of the last powers to fade, neither his cabinet nor Congress will vote him out. So, the article
1: concludes...
2: Mr. Trump has been a poor president in his first year. In his second, he may cause America grave damage. But the presidential telenovela is a diversion. He and his administration need to be held properly to account for what they actually
1: do. But we go from one childish figure given too much responsibility to another one now. Our international section investigated whether the world's teens are losing their rebellious edge.
3: At the gates of Santa Monica College in Los Angeles, a young man with a skateboard is hanging out near a group of people who are smoking marijuana in view of the campus police. His head is clouded too, but with worry, not weed. He frets about his student loans, and the difficulty of finding a job, even fearing that he might end up homeless. Not to sound intense, he adds, but robots are taking work from humans. Our
1: article argued that this is a broader trend.
3: Young people are indeed behaving and thinking differently from previous cohorts at the same age. These shifts can be seen in almost every rich country, from America to the Netherlands to South Korea. Teens
1: are drinking less, taking fewer drugs, they're less violent, and they're
3: having less sex. In short, young people are less hedonistic and break fewer rules than in the past. They are kind of boring, says Shoko Yonoyama, an expert on Japanese teenagers at the University of Adelaide. What is going on? According to some research... One possible explanation is that family life has changed. Because families are smaller the hours are spread across fewer offspring. But... Another possibility is that teenagers and young people are more focused on school and academic work. A larger proportion of teenagers believe they will go on to university. As a result, they may be staying at home more. Meanwhile, paid work is collapsing.
1: Technology and immigration patterns are also possible culprits. However, our article, like any good teen movie, ends optimistically.
3: One way of thinking about the differences between the youth of today and yesterday is that today's lot are taking it slow. Babies born today in a rich country can expect to live for at least 80 years. Goodness knows at what age they will be entitled to state pensions. Today's young people have all the time in the world.
1: But generational anxieties are nevertheless going global. Our China section explores why people are fighting for space in the shade under certain family trees.
3: When Richard Liu asked for help in tracing his family history, thousands of people offered suggestions. Little wonder, Mr Liu, the founder of JD.com, a popular online mull, is worth about $10 billion. There are more than 65 million people in China who share his surname – Some would love to connect their family branches to his bountiful tree.
1: However, Liu is a common name and records can be inconsistent.
3: Veneration of ancestors is part of Chinese culture. Traditionally, this required the scrupulous updating of genealogies by family elders. These were recorded in books known as Zupu that listed members of each generation, though typically only the men. But war and migration in the past two centuries have complicated matters.
1: For Mr Liu, a key Tsupu is missing.
3: But not all is lost. Over the past couple of decades, clan associations have re-established themselves and worked to compile records again. Zupu that were hidden in Mao's day, or taken abroad, have helped to fill in gaps.
1: And the internet is greasing the wheels.
3: Websites are helping to make the search easier. With luck, searching for ancestors will someday be as easy as online shopping.
1: And almost as easy as listening to podcasts. Take, for example, our Economist radio shows as we go through some of our top moments from last week. On Money Talks, we took a look at the exhausted gym business.
0: As you would expect, the day after Boxing Day, when we've all stuffed our faces, and even more so on January 1st, as we wake up with the best of intentions, we all go onto the internet and start searching for ways to get healthy.
1: Babbage went underwater to see if submarine drones can help in the search for a missing plane. The submarines seem to be quite key to this
0: search, so what can you tell us about those?
4: They're unusual in as much as they're completely autonomous underwater submarines. They're about six meters long and they weigh 1,800 kilos and they're bright orange. They look like big fat cigars. Ann McElvoy
1: sat down with Michael Wolf, the author at the center of the current firestorm over President Trump's fitness for office. Nobody speaks to anybody else and everybody... Um, stands in in fear of Donald Trump, in in absolutely often in horror of Donald Trump, um, and always at all times in confusion about what Donald Trump, about who Donald Trump is, what he wants, and where he is taking this White House. And the week ahead dug deeper into what's next for the president. But to a certain extent, I
0: think the fears were justified in the sense that, you know, he said he would do all these things and he hasn't done them. And then in the background, you always have this big fear, which I think is something that people are thinking about now in the wake of the Michael Wolf book. There's always a risk with Trump that because he is the guy
1: he is, he might make a really unusual decision. But we go from high drama to high drama now. A new survey in Canada has provoked a clash of census
4: and sensibility. If an agency of your government asked whether you had recently smoked a joint and how much you paid for it, would you tell it? Canada's statistics agency, informally known as StatCan, is about to find out what that country's citizens would do. On January 23rd, it will invite Canadians to disclose their cannabis habits anonymously through an app. Its nosiness is entirely professional. Canada's government, led by Justin Trudeau, plans to legalise the recreational use of cannabis by July 1st. StatCan needs reliable data in order to incorporate the newly respectable consumer goods sector into national accounts. The challenge
1: for Canadian authorities is measuring the contribution of an illegal
4: drug to the economy. All too often, the records go up in smoke. Once Canadians can get legally bombed, measuring the worth of indulgence will get easier. Just hunting for past data can be risky, as a researcher in Parliament's Budget Office discovered. The legislature's technology unit spotted that he was looking at weedy websites and amassing files of fragrant data and shut down his computer account. He had to persuade the in-house detectives that his work was legitimate. As legalization looms, the agency in charge is hungry for data and craving new information. On the day StatCan releases the app, it will publish its first estimates of the cannabis economy, dating back to 1961 on a new cannabis hub. It will have a space for anyone to suggest more accurate data. If people think the price is too low, they will be able to suggest tweaks, which would raise the value of the cannabis economy. They will leave no stoners unturned. The agency's work might help other countries contemplating legalisation of black markets. The more smokers distort their perceptions of reality, the less statisticians can afford to do so. But while one green leaf is booming, another
1: is in trouble, as an article in our business section takes a look at India's cooling tea industry.
0: Bulk tea sales at the offices of J. Thomas in Kolkata, which first started auctioning the stuff in 1861, lack the boisterousness of years past. Gone is the noisy trading pit – replaced by a handful of buyers sitting behind their laptops in a silent auditorium. Tea
1: remains popular worldwide, but business in India is sluggish.
0: Tea drinking in India has grown by less than 3% a year since 2012, and foreign sales have barely risen in 70 years. In some rich export markets, they are shrinking. On the world scene, India is behind Sri Lanka and Kenya, both relative newcomers. Government meddling in the form of onerous, outdated rules is mostly to blame for the industry's worsening fortunes. As the industry modernises, quality has suffered. Tea leaves are now shredded into tiny bits, which generate lots of flavour, but less of the subtlety for which Indian tea has been prized abroad. Indians boil rather than brew their tea, and so tend to make do with lower-quality leaves. Improvised small-time growers, some of them with barely a few plants, have sprouted, further denting quality.
1: So how are big producers adapting?
0: Tea marketers' hope is to nudge consumers both in India and abroad to slurp pricier brews, moving them from loose tea to tea bags, canned iced tea or premium
1: blends. Ultimately, however...
0: The biggest gripe in the industry is not to do with prices, quality or even heavy-handed regulation. Customers, especially millennials, increasingly lack the patience to make a proper cup of tea, laments Krishnan Katyal, the boss of J. Thomas. The leaves need at least three minutes to release their complex aromas, beyond an eternity for youngsters these days. Like a master distiller told of a single malt being mixed with Coca-Cola, he winces at the thought of drinkers squeezing their tea bag after merely a few seconds. That poor thing, he says, it never got a chance.
1: Now, there's nothing quite like a hot cup of tea in a good book, so now we head over to our books and arts section to find a review of the latest French literary sensation.
3: Layla Slimani is a young Moroccan-born journalist based in Paris. Her first novel, about a woman who becomes addicted to sex as relief from her stifling bourgeois life, was compared to Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary. Her second won the Goncourt Prize in 2016. This month, it comes out in English. Like her first work, inspired by the sex scandal that felled Dominique Strauss-Kahn, a French political grandee, The Perfect Nanny is also based on a true story about a nanny who murders her small charges. The setting? Miriam Massey is a promising young lawyer who embraces motherhood but finds domesticity suffocating. Her husband, Paul, does not want his children brought up by immigrants. Not too old, no veils and no smokers. The family lives in a handsome building in the 10th arrondissement in Paris, where neighbours offer friendly greetings even if they don't know each other. The murderer? The nanny they hire is Louise, who sets about lightening the atmosphere of the Massey's home with all the preternatural sweetness of a supermarket air freshener. She tirelessly repeats the children's favourite games, rearranges the apartment, cooks up a storm, and even does the mending that Miriam has been endlessly putting off. And our verdict. A slim page-turner, the perfect nanny, can be read in a single shivery sitting. It satisfies every middle-class nightmare about the guilty relief of entrusting your screaming toddlers to other people's care. It will make a great film. Great literature, it isn't.
1: So there you have it. Imperfect nanny, imperfect novel. And that's it for our tasting menu this week. Do get in touch at Economist Radio on Twitter or via email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.